Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. My guests today arrived here because I read the monthly Friends Journal faithfully, and my every other monthly Western friend, of course. And in the April 2017 Friends Journal, there was a review of Gregory Barnes' book, A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee. And then I got an email from Brent Bill further calling it to my attention. Even before reading A Centennial History, I knew a lot about the AFSC, and so I knew it would be a rich source, and then I realized that both Greg and I would be at the nationwide Friends General Conference gathering held at Niagara University this summer, which brings us to a classroom at the university with Gregory Barnes to learn about the peace and justice trailblazing work of the AFSC. Greg, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I hope I can say hello, Badgers, also, because I live five years in your state at beautiful Madison. And why did you ever consider leaving Wisconsin? My career took me elsewhere. Let's put it that way. And I've never been back, I'm sorry to say. You know, I'm having you here as the author of A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee, but that wasn't always your profession. That's what you got when you grew up, right, That as a profession. You could say that. I actually think I've been a writer all my life, but didn't really get launched until I could afford to do it without receiving a lot of money. So I worked most of my career as an English as a second language teacher. So now your second career is as an author. On the back of the book, people will find some of the books that you've written. Some are specifically Quaker-centric. There's one that's a novella, A Wind of Change. What's that about? I came to Madison, actually, from the Peace Corps. Five years in the Peace Corps and then five years at Madison. So I had a very interesting decade of the 60s. And I started in Sierra Leone. And the novella was about changes happening in Africa based on a saying, I think, by Harold Macmillan, British prime minister, that the winds of change are sweeping across Africa. So I titled my novella, A Wind of Change. I think you and I have to sit down and have a good discussion about Africa. My Peace Corps service, as I mentioned to you before we began broadcasting, was in Togo from 77 to 79. Yours in Sierra Leone again? Mine was in Sierra Leone from 61 to 63. And then I went on to work with the staff in northern Nigeria, as it was then called. And that would have been before the big war happened there, Biafra and all that. That's right. As I was leaving, the the Biafran war was sort of getting started. But I didn't see any of that. 
Just as well, perhaps. I don't know. So, And then you came to Wisconsin yes. and spent four years around Madison. Five years uh, getting a Ph.D. in English. It probably should have been history because now I write history, as you know, as you can see. Yes. Well, there's an immense amount of history captured in this book. Again, the topic is the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, This is the 100th anniversary of the creation. It was created right at the start of World War I, right at the start of the U.S. entry into World War I. Of course, there had been a lot going on, particularly amongst Quakers in England already at that point. But all of a sudden, you know, we're going to be going into the war. And, you know, Quakers are not known for doing things quickly. But somehow the genesis of the American Friends Service Committee was amazing. In less than two months, it's up and actually doing things. I would say more or less three weeks. They, they got this committee together. I'm not sure when they named it the American Friends Service Committee, but they were ready to start work almost immediately. I guess there had been some thought going into it previously. You capture it already in the book. Why don't you relay a little bit of that history, that starting wars declared by three weeks, what has happened? A group of faculty members at one little college, Haverford College, which most Quakers know about outside Philadelphia, headed by Rufus Jones, decided to set up a program for conscientious objectors, not just Quakers. And, of course, they had to clear a lot of bases. They had to go, particularly to Washington, they had to deal with the Selective Service, they had to deal with the State Department, and so on, and get approval to set up an alternative training program for COs who would go over and rebuild France, as it turned out. People take for granted right now this idea of conscientious objectorship. It was not accepted back then. At best, what you might hope for is that you could get in the military and have a non-combatant role. But the AFSC is asking for something more in this case. They were indeed, and they were the people who more militant COs were really brutalized when they tried to uh, refuse to wear uniforms and uh, refuse to carry a rifle and things like that. So there were stresses and strains. Somehow it worked out, and there were a number of things that helped. First of all, the English friends had been in the field since 1914, doing a good job. So so they had a good reputation. France was suffering and had no men left to rebuild the towns that were uh, being destroyed. And the Red Cross stepped in and said, we need help. And believe it or not, the director of the Red Cross was a student of the Rufus Jones, the leading Quaker in the team at Haverford. So they had maintained contact. So all those things came together and sort of opened the way. I guess a little bit of the historical context. I don't remember this being in the book, but actually World War I was going for three years before the U.S. entered into it. So we're kind of getting in toward the end, and so we get involved in the cleanup in the United States, if you will. There had already been so many millions of people killed in the war. But it's at our entry into the war, and by our entry I mean the entry of the United States into the war, that the Quakers get off their butt in the United States and make something happen. So conscience subjection is really a nascent concept in terms of governmental structure. What did the AFSC and Rufus Jones do? Uh, Well, a lot of politicking, I guess you'd say. That's the big thing they did. And recruiting of young men, not just Quakers. Mennonites and Brethren are also pacifists. And uh, there were Methodists and others. And got together a training program at Haverford College by the summer of 1917. And that was, of course, within two months of the time war had been declared. And that training program started up. 
And they're training them to do what? Now, because right now, when we think of conscience objectors, they do perform alternative service, and this is all government-controlled and uh, much more central way than it was back then. So what are they training them in these camps? Uh, I'd say mostly carpentry and agricultural skills. So there was a lot of rebuilding to be done in the towns. And there was the, of course, the crops had to be harvested and replanted and so on. So they were trained in those sorts of skills. The other thing that happened in 1917, if people follow their history a little bit, is that I guess you'd say the Soviet Union, Russia, communist Russia is born. The Bolsheviks have their victory during that year. They kind of pull out of it, but there's all of this death and destruction. So one of the things you talk about is particularly the women who go working on the fringes of Russia. I'm glad you brought that up. Ironically, the first program that got sent overseas was not men to France, but six women to Russia to help the starving infants and, and mothers there. And they sent them out to areas in, near in the Volga region where they were not really nurses, but social workers, but they did their best with the ill and they really organized feeding programs and somehow managed to get through this terrible starvation without, being, without starving themselves, not being attacked because they had food to offer. But it was, it's a great story. So Rufus Jones has a certain amount of charisma and ability. He's got the connections to get things done. You know, when you said, Greg, that they really got this organized within three weeks, people can't imagine that because they, they didn't have email. I mean, they didn't even have telephones in those days. So this is really, you know, running from place to place. And so if you're going to communicate with Washington, D.C. Selective Service, there's actually some travel you do that takes you a day or two. So That is correct. Again, I think this is probably proof that miracles do happen, that you could get that together within three weeks. The government was not in favor of it at the time, though. I mean, you have no. to work with various ministers. No. To some degree, the government is saying, no way, this is just going to encourage those Cowards, evil people. Yes. Yeah. So what were some of the specifics of the channels that they went through and the hoops that they were able to surmount? First of all, there was a war department. They had to deal with them. There was the Treasury Department, which had to do with overseas transfers of money, which would be part of their problem. And then there was the Red Cross, which would serve as an intermediary. And also, don't forget, there was fundraising to be done among Quakers, typically. And so they, they had to undertake all this within a very short period of time. So there are two things really going on here. The idea of conscience objection being born, but not using that as an opportunity to just keep yourself safe from the war. These people were willing to go over into war zones. So they're putting their lives on the line. They're just not willing to take lives. So they're doing service, and that, hence the name American Friends Service Committee. It's not just the American Friends Anti-Military Committee or something that like that. That is correct. And some of them were in zones which were bombed, and they had to be evacuated, and they did risk their lives to a degree. At what point did the U.S. government actually let people from the U.S. go over, primarily men, I guess, because they're, they're doing alternative service. Women weren't drafted at that time. That's right. By September, actually, it was allowed. There was a false start earlier on when they were supposed to load onto a boat, and it didn't happen. But by September, they were on their way to France. And then there was a second wave sometime in the next year. The government did acquiesce. Jones, in addition to his many other skills, was quite a diplomat, apparently. So this is the birth of the American Friends Service Committee during the war. 
pretty soon, you know, the rebuilding of France has to happen. I mean, there's a tide that's already turned, and so we're starting to rebuild there. And there's a, We're not going to forget the ladies over in Russia who are facing their own issues because there's the change of government that's happened there, and who knows if the government's going to be sympathetic to them being there or not or consider them foreign instigators of sorts. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the women, what the progression of their work there was. They didn't have to actually bury the bodies, but people actually died on their doorsteps. And they would take train loads of food down to Buzaluk, was the name of one town that the Americans were in. The British were in another town. And somehow get a story. Of course, they had Russian helpers. And they would apparently lock it up. And then mostly women, a few men, Russians, and then later English and American men came to help out. But it must have been a terrible situation. There was one report of bodies being buried or in a very orderly fashion, 200 to a ditch. And that that's, gives you an idea of what they lived through. Why are these women going since they're not facing the draft? This can't be alternative service for them. They were extraordinary women. That I can only tell you that five of the six original ones were Quakers. And apparently they were motivated to serve their fellow humans. But those who are going to France for the rebuilding... Were these all, I guess, say, draftees or people who were facing military service alternative? Yes, until the second wave when women started joining them. But otherwise, yes, they were. And as I say, they were not all Quakers. Yes, of course, we're dealing, as you said, with Mennonites, with Brethren, and Quakers rounding out the historic peace churches. But Methodists, I'm sure that there's people from every religion who, and from no religion, who've Probably, yes. been included in this kind of work. Uh, they may not have found a home until they found out that there are other people who believed as they did. So it's kind of hard to capture from the point of view of 2017 how different the world was back in 1917. Not only did conscientious objection not exist as a policy or as a concept in government, there was also very strong opposition to helping people out in some ways. I mean, the welfare didn't exist at that point as a government policy. So this No Social Security. No Social Security. There's all of these things. This is before them. So when we're they're going over to France and then to Germany very soon after took a while to get into Germany because of the antipathy of uh, Americans, really, and British, to uh, helping the Germans. But then that's another part of the really, possibly the most dramatic part of the AFSE story, is feeding all these up to a million children a day, children and expectant mothers. When did that actually happen? When did the child feeding program that, again, another person that comes into the story is Herbert Hoover, who later became president, but at this point he's an engineer, actually. He's organizing some of the U.S. policy at that point. Explain his role. I'd like to plead for a reevaluation of Herbert Hoover. So, okay, maybe he wasn't a wonderful president, but he was a wonderful Quaker. His ministry throughout his life, reflected in his contacts with the AFSC, was uh, feeding children and expectant mothers. It actually, he started in China, believe it or not, early in the century, And I will make a rash claim that in the first half century of the 20th century, Herbert Hoover fed more children than all the U.N. agencies together did in the second half. Now, that's probably not true. But the comparison is not ridiculous. This man organized millions of times. He wrote about it, actually. It's it's all documented in his books. Millions of children. He saved them, basically, through his Quaker Spies, as it was called in, in Germany. 
you know, Quaker feeding in English, we typically say the child feeding program that happened there. The Belgian Relief Project, I believe he was at the head of. Now, that's a government agency of the U.S., right? Yes, and that became a, a church-state issue because Herbert Hoover was a wonderful Quaker, I think, but uh, he represented the American government. And so collaboration between the AFSC and the British service was somewhat impeded by the fact that Hoover kept saying, no, this has to be an American effort. And Rufus Jones said, no, this is a Quaker effort, and we're not going to disassociate ourselves from the English. So it's quite a story. There's quite a conflict. If I were a playwright, I would write a play about Herbert Hoover and his relations with the AFSC. Well, you know, Greg, this is already your second major vocation that you're carrying out. <laughs> so your third one could be the playwright. There's plenty of time. You've, you've got a lot ahead of <laughs> yeah. you. Let's explore that a little bit. And I first didn't quite latch on to what was the issue with Herbert Hoover and the American Friends Service Committee. Again, he's not working with them. He's in some ways aiding and abetting at times and sometimes impeding their work because they can't quite come to agreement. If there's money that's coming from the U.S., the U.S. wants it, the program, whatever's happening, to have the U.S.'s name on it. So this United States government who's bringing you food. So he was vested in that as a government employee. The American Friends Service Committee, definitely outside of the government, has a very different idea about what you want to do. And, in fact, to be trusted, you have to not be governmental. I think that's part of the dynamic Well, particularly in Russia. Yeah. So there's something that happens in the war, and you've got this supply of young men who say, no, I don't want to go kill anyone, but I would be willing, I would like to do service that will do good of people. About how many people are we talking about who participated in the work of the AFSC as alternative service? All told, with all the the people who went on various ships, I would say a couple of thousand. Not, Not a lot, but quite a few. Actually, at the end of the war, there was, of course, an existential crisis for the AFSC. First of all, nobody else needed to rebuild France now. The French men were coming back, and the French would rebuild their own country. There were no more COs to protect, so what was the AFSC's function in life now? And they talked about laying it down. But then uh, they saw the suffering in Germany and elsewhere and decided that they would continue as a relief organization. That had lots of implications and caused other existential crises because there is lots going on in the world still today that takes much more than a small NGO to repair. But that was their next step to feed the starving Europeans. Including those in Germany. And it's hard to emphasize sufficiently what a radical idea this is from the point of view of the U.S. government, at least. Very unpopular with the public, actually. And Hoover was not best pleased. Hoover took a real dislike to the Germans because he had been in Belgium when the the Germans actually removed the Belgian milk cows. Why did he do that? He brought them to Wisconsin so we'd have all the cows, right? (laughs) (laughs) They took it for their own needs? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so following the war, there's all these starving children in Germany and there's the punitive actions towards Germany were pretty serious. Oh, they were, yes, and probably generated another war, right? Yeah, essentially generated another war. But the Quakers got in, and one of the statements, I don't remember who the quote was from, the person you quoted talked about how Quakers fed both the body and the soul as they came in. They didn't proselytize which was unusual for religious groups. You know, Methodists or the Catholics or something, when they sent any kind of relief, 
they did it as a front for their proselytizing. Quakers didn't do that. AFSC was actually slow getting into Germany because of antipathy from Hoover, among others, but they found plenty of other people to feed, and they were in places like Poland and Serbia and Austria. And finally, the pressure on Hoover and others to deal with the German children and their starvation led to the AFSC setting up a feeding program there in, I think, 1921, but it took a couple of years to overcome all this hostility. And again, I think that very few people can remember that the historical context then was there were not NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, charitable organizations. All of this structure that we're used to in 2017 was being created by AFSC at the time. They're innovating things here. We'll get into this later in the book, but what's called Friends Committee on National Legislation, I understand, was the first religious national lobby at that time. So AFSC is creating the template, shall we say, for relief agency, for political action, for spiritual action on the part of a religious group. And one of the places they're doing this is in Germany. Now, you and I obviously know, since we're both Quakers, why you would do this. It's not intuitively obvious to a certain number of people in the government then and certainly now. They say, why would you be feeding the enemy? Or the enemy children, they'll grow up to be enemies, right? What was motivating the Quakers at that time? I can't answer beyond the idea that it grows out of the Quaker faith, that there's that of God and everyone, including Germans. I guess, including ISIS fighters today, and we would probably be sympathetic, or tender at least, towards uh, those who needed help after this war is over, if it ever ends. And again, the book is The Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee, 2017, is our centennial. So we're just following World War I at this point. So this template is growing, and you know, more than 10 years in, we get to the point where Herbert Hoover becomes president. Again, he's working in the government, even though he's deeply motivated by his Quaker faith. And he does kind of a stalling job, I guess you'd say, after the Depression hit, until we get FDR as president of the United States. There's a whole lot of new templates being created during the New Deal at that time, too. What are the Quakers doing in the 30s? Well, that's the thing. They, at least temporarily, changed their focus from overseas to Appalachia, where the miners' depression really started even before the Great Depression, like the late 20s. They, too, were starving. And there's an interesting connection, which is that the women and men who had served in Russia with the starving masses there were recruited. They were considered prime candidates to work in Appalachia, and some of them did respond. Some fascinating stories are told uh, can be told of these women who came from Russia to Appalachia and set up new feeding programs there. So that was what they were doing, and this is actually given a more impetus by Eleanor Roosevelt after FDR was elected. What's the connection with Eleanor Roosevelt? There was a great deal of concern at the AFSC about Hoover, but also about FDR. Would he be really interested in the work of this new NGO that was setting new precedents? Well, it turns out that Eleanor was very interested in the AFSC. Even before inauguration, she and FDR had the pickets. You know, Clarence Pickett and his wife, Lily, were up to Hyde Park to explain what was going on in Appalachia. She immediately took an interest and planned a trip down to West Virginia with the pickets and got involved with the miners and with her own particular, her special blend of power, you'd have to admit, say, personality and humility, 
and intelligence. She took over a large part of the, well, I'd say she built morale of both the miners and the AFSC workers. There is a town now in Pennsylvania named for Eleanor Roosevelt because of her work there. It's called Norvelt. I didn't quite catch on at first, but that, that was named for Eleanor Roosevelt because the miners saw her uh, interest in them. This early work by this group, the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee, is very often just meeting basic physical needs, food and clothing. When we think of the AFSC today, which again, 100 years later, it's working with a very different number of priorities. How long did this continue? I mean, you've got the Depression going on. Did the AFSC establish its own soup kitchens? Or You talked about one community that they established. It was kind of an intent to see how you could get people to work together at the local level to sustain themselves. What were they doing as specific programs? And again, they don't have draftees to staff. Right, but they have a lot of very devoted Quaker volunteers and these people who come from Russia who were so well-equipped to deal with this hardship. And the, I guess the big thing was they did, they encouraged homesteading. They were trying to encourage the miners to leave the mines, which would employ them only occasionally and then lay them off or give them one day a week and so on, to leave them and become farmers. Well, we know now that West Virginians and Kentuckians don't like to leave the haulers, right? They, they basically are very tied to their communities, and the farming life there is very poor. But the AFSC succeeded to a degree, and they set up craft stores, and they encouraged education. And Eleanor Roosevelt actually funded a school and got FDR to come give the graduation address to the first graduating class. Now, there was a problem. They were outsiders, and there's a lot of suspicion you know, among people of Washington people coming in from the outside and trying to dictate things. Again, one of the things I'm noting, and it's different from what happens today, instead of being primarily interested in changing government policies and grappling with those kind of things directly, they're dealing with human needs, the physical needs. I think that made them more innocuous. I mean, you're feeding people, okay, it's okay to feed people, you're preventing starvation, right? When you try and organize the government, which the AFSC essentially became a force for trying to change how our entire society worked, they're open to much more criticism. But, you know, if things are structured so that it's going to cause starvation, as the Great Depression did, and you say, well, then we need to change the structure so we don't cause starvation instead of just feeding the people on the end. Is there a gradual change that happened in the AFSC from feed people to change government so that we don't have starvation? Well, it was forced on them, basically, by the changes. Actually, the, uh, the United States did develop out of the Depression and prosperity bloomed, but there were other things going wrong. Now, meanwhile, of course, the Spanish Civil War took place, and another amazing story of the AFSC is with the British friends, feeding both sides in the country during the war. It's, it's a great story. Uh, then there's World War II, which comes immediately. So there are refugees from Spain and the refugees from France and so on, and the AFSC is involved in feeding programs down outside Vichy, France, basically, of all sorts of peoples coming through. So then, of course, after World War II, then is when the, is the, when the focus could turn toward American problems, and they saw things that they didn't really like, among them segregation. So when you talk about changing society or changing the government, you're talking about segregation and institutional policies that don't work very well for other people. Again, we're talking with Greg Barnes. He's the author of A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee, also known as AFSC. 
Greg Barnes has written other books, and you'll be able to follow a link from my site, and you can see that information on NordenSpiritRadio.org. So come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, track him down, get links, hear other programs we've created over the past 12 years, and post a comment when you visit. Make our communication two-way. There's also a donate button on our webpage. That is how this full-time work is supported. It's not the government, and it's not corporations that are supporting this. It's you, the listener. Even more important, though, than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is support your local community radio stations. They provide an invaluable alternative voice. It's so needed in the area of concentration of our media, where 90% of our media is controlled by six corporations in the U.S. Alternative media is so absolutely crucial. Please start by supporting the local community radio station in your area. Again, Greg Barnes is my guest, Centennial History of the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee. And we're coming up to the time in history. We're we're going over history, but we're also reviewing how the template for social action is changing in this country. One of the things that happened between 1917 and certainly the 1950s is this whole growth of the Cold War mentality. Following World War II in particular, I mean, there was a period there where Russia was allies with us against the Axis powers. Following World War II, all of a sudden the communists are the bad guys, and U.S. government policy becomes you can't do anything nice to and for the communists. Quakers, again, have this naive from many people's point of view, naive belief that you have to be loving to all people. There's that of God and everyone, as the phrase goes. Quakers were seen as being pink-tinged often, and the AFSC in particular had to deal with that, I think. Well, they did, yes. I will say it is very hard to be tender toward Joseph Stalin and people like him. So the Quakers couldn't get into Russia. It was Stalin way back in the 20s who kicked them out. But yes, there were charges that we were soft on communism. One of my, the people I wrote about, I wrote a biography of Lillian and George Willoughby, who are well-known activist friends. And Lillian once said, back in the 50s, even Quakers were looking for communists behind the benches. So anyway, yes, there was concern about communism. One little historical note that I found pretty interesting, speaking of, you know, communists behind the benches, there was the whole situation that happened with Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers, who was the person who accused him. And then when these committees hearings are happening, one of the attack dogs for this is Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was raised in an evangelical Christian Quaker household, which is a particular branch and identity. And they certainly call themselves Quakers, and they think of Quakers, and I probably respect them as Quakers. But Richard Nixon was clearly not what I would call a role model for anyone in my life. But Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers, they also had their Quaker connection, which I had not read that before seeing your book, Greg. Well, it's, it is fascinating, and I would like to support Hiss, but I, Larry Engel, a well-known Quaker historian, says, no, Hiss was a communist spy. But so was Chambers, and they were both, well, Hiss was an attender. His wife Priscilla was apparently a member. Chambers actually joined a meeting down in Maryland. So it's very complex and confusing and really sort of heartburning for Quakers to read about these three guys. <laughs> All three of them Quakers and having some bad role, I guess you'd say, yes. in this mm-hmm. whole thing about communism. 
it feels to me like at that point in history is where the AFSC starts its change from focusing primarily on feeding people. Well, you know, you've got uh, when the partition of Palestine happens, the AFSC is called in with the British organization. And, and that's also when the Nobel Peace Prize came to the Quakers. I was confused what might be specifically attributed to why the Peace Prize was rewarded, I think for the first time, to a religious body. I mean, there's all kinds of religious subgroups or individuals who received the Nobel Peace Prize, but this is the first time they, they tried to say, well, we want to give it to Quakers. That was kind of an odd thing. A British and American, so jointly, for feeding the Germans. It was given in 1947. So you're talking about their feeding of the Germans following World War II or World War I? Uh, well, I would say uh, the Quakers have built up quite a track record, you know, the Spaniards and the Germans and Serbians and others. But as far as I know, it was for feeding the Germans after World War II. But the citation was from the, what, unnamed to the un- unnamed, something like that. It was for Quaker activity behind the scenes doing good. Also at that time, the partition of Palestine happened to the creation of Israel or recreation of Israel. And the AFSC got asked in again to try and help feed, take care of all of the... Again, a lot of structures did not exist that we take for granted these days. But when you have refugees at that point, there was no organization. There wasn't a United Nations functional body to deal with refugees. So they call on someone else who can help organize relief for that. And so, again, it is give food, give clothes, try and give them some kind of housing. That all happens right around that time, 1947, when the Nobel Peace Prize is given. I guess maybe they felt like, the Quakers felt like, well, if you're giving us the Nobel Peace Prize, maybe we have to take on another thing. But Quakers are such a tiny percentage of the population all along the way that it's amazing to think that they were ever asked to take on such big jobs. Couldn't have done it by ourselves. It, well, as uh, you say, though, there were almost no NGOs in those days. Then the UN changed everything, and eventually they provided all those NGO services, refugee services and so on. But who else was there? There was the Red Cross and there were the Quakers. I mean the AFSC, not just the Quakers, right? Yeah, and the Red Cross frequently channeled money through the AFSC for a number of things. Why did they do it as opposed to just doing their own thing? Why, why have the AFSC, why have a, a religious-related body do this work? If the Red Cross has money, why didn't they just hire people and go do it? Red Cross, too, got, got outmanned. It got outnumbered. They, they couldn't handle all the things that were going on, and they saw the Quakers having this experience, and they called on the Quakers. And the AFSC soon found that they were saying yes too often, and they couldn't do all these things that were asked for. They got into earthquake relief and flood relief and all sorts of other things, and it was too much for this little body of Quakers, particularly the funding program for the AFSC and the manpower shortage. They couldn't do it. Okay, so we're getting through the 1950s, we're getting into the turbulent 60s, we're getting to a very big change. I think this is the first time that for a war, the Quakers, the American Friends Service Committee, was really tempted to be agitators against the war. I think they tried to hold themselves back, but it's like during the day I'm working for the AFSC, I'm officially neutral on the war, but at night I'm going to be part of this demonstration. That is correct, and uh, not just that, but in segregation, too. So the AFSC allowed their uh, their workers to participate in sit-ins, 
but the AFSC was not officially involved. The AFSC supported indirectly, morally, the Golden Rule voyage and then the voyages to Hanoi and so on by various activists, but was not officially a sponsor. It was a big problem, fundraising implications and uh, separation of church and state and so on, but they were obviously opposed to the war and opposed to segregation and did what they could behind the scenes. And what attitude came from the government towards the AFSC at that point? At a certain point, the government's actually depending on this religious group to help clean up the mess that the wars are causing. In the case of Vietnam War, the U.S. government doesn't want anybody to say it's a stupid war, so they kind of want to keep the AFSC quiet. But the AFSC was actually in Vietnam during the war. They had to be evacuated from time to time and so on, running rehabilitation clinics where they did prostheses and other sorts of medical relief. So, yes, I'm sure the government did not approve, but the AFSC tried to stay in Vietnam throughout the war. And you're referring to the Golden Rule, which maybe a lot of people don't know about that boat trip. I am sorry. That's another book about the Willoughbys, 1958. That was to protest nuclear testing in the Pacific. Then in the 60s, uh, the Phoenix made these voyages to Vietnam, carrying supplies to Hanoi and so on. And that was very unpopular. It was led by Quakers, some still alive. And the AFSC didn't officially give its imprimatur. But behind the scenes, of course, they were AFSC workers, including somebody on the board, somebody, Stuart Meacham, who worked for the AFSC directly. So, yeah, it was uh, walking a high tightrope. Something else, by the way, that happened in 1947, you may not be aware of, Greg. And again, folks, we're speaking with Greg Barnes, author of A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee. In 1947, a movie came out by this guy known on screen as John Wayne. The movie was called The Angel and the Bad Man. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not seen it. In that movie, in essence, John Wayne becomes a Quaker gives up his guns, and becomes one of the peaceable farmers. You don't kind of expect it, but that's the same year that the AFSC got the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) And John Wayne not only starred in the movie, but he produced it. That is, he put up money to have it. And it's a propaganda movie for the Quakers. That's very interesting because it's inconsistent with what I know about him as a sort of a war hawk. Am I wrong? No, it's true, but we're talking about 1947, so he had plenty of time to change his views in other directions, (laughs) whatever. I take that as indicative of some of the attitudes about Quakers. You know, strange, small splinter group, weird, different, but innovating things like the American Friends Service Committee. And in the 1940s, the Friends Committee on National Legislation becomes a template for how does a religious group attempt to affect the policies of our government and FCNL still strong going today and doing wonderful things. So AFSC continues and has morphed in the course of the 1950s and 60s into a group that attempts to change society and specifically to kind of change government. It's not that they're lobbying government, that's not the point, but to try and change people so they won't put up with structures that are bad for people. Could you talk about some of those changes that came about in the 60s, 70s? The big effort and the credit goes to the African-Americans who who fought for their own freedom. The FSC was there. I I just have to say at all those important moments, the Little Rock Nine, the uh, Selma Bridge, James Meredith's march through Mississippi, and uh, the Prince Edward County, Virginia, closing down of its schools rather than integrating 
the FSC was working behind the scenes in all those cases. More recently, and I have to sort of jump forward a bit, we talk about immigration. That's been a, a concern of the FSC for many years. And of course, they're on the progressive side wanting to, well, be kind to immigrants, let's put it that way, and prison reform. Currently, they're very big on prison reform. So those are some of the policies that are, we're talking about changing our government, changing how our society works. And again, it's not about lobbying, but it's about on the ground trying to create things. There is one organization, a community that was created, it was back in, the, I think, in the 1930s it was created. That went for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, didn't it? That You know the organization I'm talking about? I think it was probably in Kentucky or Tennessee. Well, yes, there are, there are towns named Arthurdale and, and Norvelt, which I think are still there, and were original AFSC homestead communities. And Tennessee Valley Authority, I didn't write about that because it's a very tenuous connection, but it was sort of modeled on Quaker activity then, too. So we're getting in the 1970s, and things are changing. We've, I want to say we institutionalized some of our social action in a much wider way in society. It becomes typical to have charitable organizations, 501c3s, NGOs, all of that by 1970 and 1980. And so the AFSC is not alone anymore in that it may have been amongst the first, but there's a whole lot of others going on at that time. Other Quakers have started organizations that dealt with the problems that the uh, AFSC dealt with, like there's Oxfam and there's Amnesty International and there's Greenpeace. They all have Quaker origins. There's right sharing of world resources, which is celebrating here its 50th anniversary. So yes, so the AFSC had said yes too often to to things they couldn't quite accomplish, all these relief programs. And now the UN, too, of course, has instituted a lot of programs to deal with the things the AFSC once tried to deal with. And so these organizations often got spun off, if you will, from the AFSC itself. I tried to follow, and I have to admit, Greg, as I read through the book, I had a great deal of difficulty keeping track of the organizational chart of how this Quaker organization works. For people who are listening who have no idea what the hell Quakers are, Quakers make decisions in a different way than most people in our society. People are used to thinking about consensus, and for Quakers it's even consensus that's much more nebulous than the consensus that most organizations are used to working with. And still there's these massive things taken on, massive issues and structures and problems in society that are taken on by the AFSC. And structurally, you've got the people overseas and how you organize, because more and more the AFSC got involved in countries all over Africa and Asia and everywhere. Talk about some of those changes that happened in those years from the mid on into later in the 1900s. I have to mention another existential crisis, which was that at a certain point, people of color said to the AFSC, you can't keep sending white volunteers out to do things for black or, or other colored communities. Those communities have to be involved, at least involved. And so uh, the trend has been then to delegate the work to these other communities and non-friends, but people who are acculturated to the, the Quaker way of doing things. So that has resulted in health clinics, say, which were once staffed by white or American doctors, by now native barefoot doctors or others who, who do basic medicine in Haiti or other countries. So yes, uh, that's, that's the implementation part of it. The way it arrives, and this is sort of Quaker process, it comes out of worship, which is to say it basically comes from the bottom up that Quakers decide through this slow sense of the meeting process that something should be done about X. 
and then it filters up, and say in the case of the AFSC, there is a board made up almost exclusively of Quakers, and they deliberate, and they come up with their own idea of how to implement it, and then it's put into effect. Fundraising starts, and people are found, and so on. Often, though, a sort of indirect supervision of the program, particularly overseas. One exception being East Africa, where there are lots of Quakers, uh, evangelical friends, that the AFSC and, and other friends are working with on projects like Alternatives to Violence, the Healing and uh, Reconciliation Commission that the Rwandans and Burundis have set up, for example, are things that have happened with the AFSC participating in the background, facilitating it and making it possible. And so we're getting up closer to the centennial where we're at. One of the other big changes that takes place is the professionalism. Now, mind you, again, when the AFSC started back in 1917, there were not NGOs and all these 501c3 organizations. That stuff just basically didn't exist back then. So everything's an innovation, and a lot of it's done with volunteers, and there's not so much professional staff. And, you know, it's a Quaker effort. You know, it's like we're going to, for alternative service, you take someone who would otherwise be drafted, and okay, well, you can do this work here. You can staff the office or haul the food or whatever. By the 60s, 70s, 80s, you're getting to the point where we're used to having lots of charitable organizations and having their organizations. So you have professionals in them. And so all of a sudden we go from here's just some Quaker who's willing to volunteer to here is someone who has a Ph.D., a master's, has long experience in training and how you organize relief projects, and they become staff for the AFSC. What kind of changes did that bring about in the organization, and both the positive and negative, I think, that happened? All right, I'm not sure that, that there's negative, but that depends on the viewpoint. And many Quakers would say, yes, it's a very sad thing that the AFSC staff is now 1% Quaker, officially Quaker, for me, it raises the question, well, what is a Quaker? Suppose we have people who join who are Methodists and Baptists and continue their denominational affiliation, but gradually, maybe totally subsume the Quaker attitude towards starving people and other people who are in need. Can't we call them Quakers? So isn't Pope Francis a sort of a Quaker? Uh, that's a bit of a stretch. I agree, and most some Quakers will not agree. He might take issue with that one. But... <laughs> On the other hand, most of the Quakers I hang out with would say Pope Francis is pretty good. And if he wants to join a meeting, I think we'd probably <laughs> be in favor. But when I was referring to problems, one of the problems that I saw developing, that I think you write about, is the tensions that grow up between an organization, which is thinking professionally, and a religious group, which is supposedly the force behind. I mean, it is the national board for AFSC, which sees things with this weird lens that we Quakers use. Those tensions have waxed and waned a little bit, and in just another day I'm going to be interviewing one of the people who's been working on trying to heal the rift that has developed. So you said, you know, 1% of the staff of the AFSC is currently officially Quaker. I'm not even sure what percentage of the membership of our meeting is officially Quaker these days. It's increasingly true out where I live that people can be involved in meeting for 40 years and never become an official member. We don't concentrate on that in any case, so it might be true for staff as well. So the tensions existed. How have they waxed and waned in the past 50 years? 
1967, there was an event at a summer institute in New Hampshire where the local people, the local inner city people were invited from Boston to join a, what we would call a threshing session. And they took over the institute and had a sit-in and put up a number of non-negotiable demands, including the fact that every city office of the AFC should be led by a, a black male, things like that. So this was presented to the AFSC, which said, well, this causes us a number of problems. We can't really respond directly, but they listened and they heard it. And it marked a great switch over to endorsement of affirmative action. Those who opposed them took up a sort of a strange Quaker position, really, of opposing affirmative action. There's that of God and everyone. Sorry, you can see which side I'm on. And the, the AFSC stuck with that. And so they have policies, and they've, they've developed them and refined them over the years to make sure, for, well, they went to quotas. Quotas don't always work. And then they incorporated the gay community and the disabled and responded to those constituents' concerns. But the people were not Quakers. Well, no, so what? <laughs> they may have subsumed themselves the Quaker ideals. And so the AFSC has made that choice. And that has caused some consternation among other Quakers. Folks, we're speaking with Greg Barnes. His book, A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee, 1917 to 2017, there's been a whole lot of good done by this organization. It still continues today. Right towards the end, you get talking about what happened with the Great Recession and the loss of money. Now, again, we've had a reduction of number of Quakers nationwide, never really a large percentage of the population. There's been a reduction in Quaker population and the funding for it. And then the Great Recession hits, and it undercuts a whole lot of the funding at FSC. They had to streamline and had to cut services. And the interaction with what you were just talking about, the affirmative action programs, you know, when you, you have to get rid of somebody, and do you do seniority? Do you do experience? Do you keep a person because they're of color when what you really need is a person who has current skills in this subject? You know, I... All of those things were tensions. I think we've significantly recovered from the impact that the Great Recession had. How is the FSC doing these days? May I comment, though, on this business of reducing staff and the pain that that caused? But the AFSC during this period, this is 2008 and 2009, laid off 40% of its staff. I think that's correct. But in any case, they kept a tally of how many people of color, how many women, and so on, to see that they maintained their unofficial quotas 50% women, for example, and I think 10% African American, etc., and came pretty close to, to staying on target. So that's what I mean by a real affirmative approach to affirmative action. Then, of course, in 2009, things bounced back. There is another complication, which is Israel. The uh, AFSC has taken a strong position in support of the Palestinians, not against the Israelis, but against the occupation of the occupied territory. And that has had fundraising implications, but apparently it's a wash. So that the American Jewish community is as divided as anybody else about the Israeli-Palestinian situation. So some big-time funders have dropped away, but others have come forward. And so that gets us close to 2017. They've recovered, rebounded significantly from the loss of staff. Funding is being pulled together, but things have been restructured. You close office. One of the issues that we have in the Quaker world is we're not a hierarchical community. We don't make decisions in the same hierarchical way that many organizations work. AFSC has reflected that to 
a very significant degree. So when you have international, local, and the question is, can the central office tell you what to do? And you do talk in the book, of course, about how the leadership and how you bring good business planning into In 2017, what are we talking about? Have, have we become efficient, organized? Are we still Quakerly? Let me go back and say I'm biased. I told you about my Peace Corps experience. The AFSC provided the model for the Peace Corps, which really got me interested in the AFSC. They set up a visa program in 1960, and the next year, Shriver and Kennedy set up the Peace Corps, which eventually drove the visa program out of business. In any case, so I'm very pro-AFSC, and I, th- I think they're doing well. It's had to become a more modest organization, of course, and its overseas operations really are, they would like to do more in Palestine. There's work in Indonesia, but basically, considering what they used to do overseas, it's pretty limited. The focus, I would say, generally is on two big problems in America, immigration and prison reform. I think very sincerely they're working on those behind the scenes, which is their best role, and we can't tell yet whether they will be successful. But please stay tuned, folks. There's a lot more coming. We've had a century of the American Friends Service Committee, and that's celebrated, recognized, analyzed in the book A Centennial History of the American Friends Service Committee by Greg Barnes. His list of resources is enormous. I can't imagine taking on a second profession where you'd have to do this level of research. This is, it's really a monumental amount of information brought together through this book about an organization that really is a template for so much of the good social action and change and healing of the world that's happened in the U.S. So it's worth reading not because it's Quaker, but because it is really a history of how social change has been taking place in our country over the past hundred years. And really, I have a great fondness for the American Friends Service Committee. They've really done such important work, and you've done important work, Greg, in gathering their history together in this book. Thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It was a ministry. It took five years, but it was worth it. So I think you better get working on the 200-year anniversary as well, Greg. If you want to find this book, you can find it, of course, on the usual suspects like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but you can especially find it via quakerbooks.org. There's a link on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice